Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Pastor Brendan. I am delighted to be here continuing our, uh, our uh, series through Colossians. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll read that passage, and we'll dive right into it. Pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we've been blessed to have it, the mystery of your gospel revealed, written down for us. We ask that you open your word to our hearts today and open up our hearts to your word. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today's reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. You have two more seconds to find that. Otherwise, it's up there. But here we go. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. So then, a quick recap of where we've been through Paul's letter to the Colossians up to this point. Paul opened his letter by praising the Colossian church for all the good things that he saw in them, the things he saw them doing, the good things he'd rather heard about them doing through Epaphras who came to tell him. And also, Paul spent some time praising God for the people he was building up as he established his kingdom in this world. He tells the Colossians that he is praying for them, and specifically that he is praying that they would do good works, that they would live the righteous life in their every day, that they would grow more intimate and rich in the knowledge of God, that they would be strengthened with endurance, and that they would not take all of this for granted in any day of their life, that they would live in abundant gratitude. Now, if you happen to catch the evening service three weeks ago, you might remember DING. That was the acronym I put together to try and remember those things. Diligence, intimacy, endurance, and gratitude. And the thing, these are the things that Paul prays that the believers will exhibit here. They're the signs of mature believers that Paul is praying for. That was three weeks ago. And two weeks ago, we saw Paul uh, go into rich, reverent detail about who Christ is and therefore what the gospel is. He's over all powers and rulers. He's before all things. The universe is created in and through and for him. And this is the God who died on the cross to reconcile our sinful selves to him. 
That's what Paul talked about for us two weeks ago. And last week, the passage was about how Paul suffers to make this gospel known. He is personally contending for these churches who have never met him so that they can grow in the richness and knowledge of the gospel. Not just to know it, but to know it deeply and powerfully. And then he comes to verse 4 in chapter 2, shortly before our passage, and finally hints at what he is saying all of this for. When he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. They are facing persuasive arguments, either flawed teaching or false teachers. But the antidote for this, Paul says, is knowing the gospel better, living it daily, being intimate with God, growing in endurance and living a grateful life. And he reminds us of these things at the start of this passage in verses 6 and 7 again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Diligence, continue to live your lives in him. Intimacy, rooted and built up in him. Endurance, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and gratitude, overflowing with thankfulness. This is the third time in two chapters that Paul has sort of hovered around this specific cluster of attributes. And he's being fairly emphatic about it. It's the kind of thing that's worth revisiting in our own private studies. Maybe get a nice woodcut of verses 6 and 7 and have them hanging on the back of the toilet door. It's important because these attributes are Paul's antidote for deception. It's his prescription for these fine-sounding lies. And if we live that kind of life, then we are equipped to bear the gospel in our lives uncorrupted. And that is our highest calling, to bear the gospel uncorrupted in our lives. Paul goes on, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So here's the warning, and what follows this will clue us in to this hollow and deceptive philosophy. And perhaps the kind of things that were dangerous to the faith of a first century Christian are dangerous to ours as well. But before we get there, we have a peculiar term here we need to pick apart. The elemental spiritual forces of this world. What's that supposed to mean? Well, this is one of those cases where the English is straining really hard to wrap around a complicated Greek word. Those three words, elemental spiritual forces, are there to substitute for one Greek word, stoicheia the stoicheia of the world. Stoicheia means one thing in a row of things. It's the small units that make up something bigger and more complicated, like letters in an alphabet or notes in music. Those are the elements of those things. I'm not sure the added word spiritual there is actually helpful for us here, because you can hear something, you can hear this saying, the hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, and then think through no fault of your own, Well, that means that these lies come from human tradition and from the lurking spirits and demons that deceive mankind on behalf of the devil. There's some truth in that, but I think Paul's emphasis on on this passage right now is on the word this. So I would read it like this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. 
So the elemental forces are those that make up the rules and principles upon this world in which humans live and upon which most of their traditions are based. But Christ did not come from this world. He came from heaven to earth, and those rules don't limit him. You can't bind him up in those rules. You cannot develop an earthly philosophy to encompass Jesus unless you lie or sell him short. He's too big for that. And people do this today. I've had more than a few conversations where people are trying to wrap their idea of Jesus around the principles of the world. You say, I agree that the Bible is God's word, but you can't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that God made humans directly and personally as an act of creation. There are worldly principles that say that people don't rise from the dead and that God just can't do that. In other words, I believe in God as long as being God doesn't mean anything. The beauty of the incarnation of Christ is the fact that God stepped into our world from outside it so that he could put it right and connect us back to him. And if we can't accept that, then anything you derive from faith or scripture is going to be warped by personal expectations of what can and can't happen, who should and shouldn't have power, what rules do and do not matter. Christ is from outside this world, and we can't contain him in this world's rules. Have you ever met someone who believes the Bible except when they don't? That's what we're talking about. We are ridiculous creatures sometimes, we humans. Anyway, Paul carries on, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This makes Christ God. There's no getting around it. If God has authority over him, then he doesn't fit Paul's description. If he has authority over the Father then the Father can't be God. But since the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, then Jesus Christ is over every power and authority because the Father is also. But why does Paul choose this moment to say this? Presumably, some of the hollow and deceptive philosophy they are working against, the kind that was uh, troubling the Colossians and Laodiceans, were perhaps those were diminishing the value of who Christ was. And these are deceptive, these kind of lies, because they're often a little bit right. It's the most effective kind of lie because there's just enough truth to fool people. Thus, it is a hollow philosophy. It looks good on the outside, but you put a little weight on it, and it crumbles because there's no integrity within it. And so there were uh, Gnostic ideas floating about at that time about Christ being a, a perfect created being whom God had made to be king over creation thus the firstborn over creation. Sort of right, but not right enough. Christ is the king over creation, but he wasn't created and wasn't created for that purpose. He is above all authority. He is God. And we have more than a few hollow Christs bobbing around today that we have to look out for. There are very polite people from the Jehovah's Witnesses who will knock on your door and they believe Christ to be an archangel the Archangel Michael, the first above all creation, but not God. Christ is above all creation. This is a little bit right, not right enough. The Mormons you might run into at the bus stop believe Christ to be the first of all the Father God's children, 
created in perfection, and then later sent to earth to rescue the souls of his foolish brothers and sisters, that's you and me, with the earth as a kind of spiritual rehab facility. And Christ's reward for that service is supposedly that one day he gets to become a father god of his own over his own world, just like his father god and his grandfather god before him. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, I've talked to some Mormons before and this never came up, exactly. They want to lead with the conventional part, the idea that Jesus Christ is God, and they try not to talk about the nutty stuff because they know people will run from it. They're right that Jesus Christ is God, but they are wrong about what that means. A little bit right, not right enough. And there's plenty of other examples of hollow Christs. Christ as a guru with good teachings. Yes, he had good teachings. Also, importantly, he is God. Christ as the righteous man who was adopted by God and made into his son. Christ is the son of God. He is righteous. He is man, but not by adoption. And he is also God, not right enough. And understanding who Jesus really is can't be undersold as a Christian value. Or rather, can't be oversold. You can't sell it enough, is my point. You can only have a hollow Christ if you never lean on him. Because if he's hollow, he can't support the weight of your life. And Paul's antidote for this is to live life growing in intimacy and the knowledge of God. And to build up your endurance against trials. We'll talk a little more about that later. But for now, verses 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So now we're talking about the covenant of circumcision, so the standard disclaimer applies. If for some reason you are perhaps too young or you just simply don't know what circumcision is, ask your parents. I'm not going to tell you right here. <clears throat> but the important part is that it was cutting away the small portion of a person's flesh. There is blood involved. It's a symbolic blood sacrifice. I'm taking this part of myself. I am cutting it away for your sake at my cost. Just like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament is a symbol of sacrifice. Now, we have to be careful when we use the word symbol because we modern Christians can take symbol to mean something that doesn't actually matter. It's just a symbol. I can draw a picture of a spider, it's a symbol of a spider, and that spider cannot hurt you. It cannot bite you, it can cause you no harm. And this idea that symbols don't really matter because they aren't really the thing they symbolize is complex and rich and buried in a whole bunch of German philosophy which undergirds our culture and I can barely grasp it myself and I'm not going to try and explain it in detail now, but the point is it's wrong. Symbols do matter, they are meaningful, and this does have an impact on our faith. And particularly our faith as Baptists, our denomination is named after our primary symbolic action, baptism. Before we regard any brothers and sisters as believers with credible maturity, the kind of people we can trust to be members of the church, we insist that they come up here, they ideally give a testimony about their coming to faith, 
and they head back to a little indoor pool back here. And you must be immersed upon the confession of your faith. You can't be dipped as a baby or the symbol does not work. You can't be lightly spritzed instead of immersed or the symbol does not work. And if you've confessed faithfully and you were immersed the first time, you can't do it a second time because the symbol wouldn't work. This is important symbolism. And if someone asks, do I need to be baptized to be saved? Do I need to be baptized to get to heaven? Do I need to be baptized to be a follower of Jesus Christ? The answer is no, it's not a magic spell. Baptism is not what saves you. Your salvation occurs between you and Christ. And there's nothing anyone else can do to make that happen. So strictly speaking, baptism does nothing. But it's important. And it's so important that we are Baptists. It's because a symbol's value is not in what it does. It's in two places. It's in what it says and in how it creates tradition. What do you mean by what a symbol says? Well, a symbol of a spider can't hurt you. It's not a real spider. Nonetheless, if a child came up to you, probably a boy, with an ice cream container with a picture of a spider on top of it, and the word symbols written on it, warning, spider, I would hope you had the sense to know what it is saying to you. Don't open this. There's a spider in it. This symbol that does not have power and does nothing can in fact save your life from a certain perspective. And likewise, more than one person has been led into relationship with Christ after witnessing the testimony and baptism of a friend or a family member, or even better, an enemy, someone they didn't like, who has nonetheless been changed by Christ. And the tradition value of symbols is tremendously important too. Traditions are how generations talk to each other. That's why the Bible is so insistent upon God's people keeping traditions, and every time they fail to keep their traditions, they fall away and they become corrupt. Traditions are cultural memories. They are the hooks on which you can hang values. And if you love them or hate them, those memories will stay with you. I was one of the first of my friends to get a driver's license. And that means tacitly that I was expected to drive everyone around whenever we had to go somewhere. Anyone who was that first person in their group to get a license knows exactly what that's like. My first car was very small. Some of my friends were not. <laughs> so I have a lot of memories of folding the passenger seat forward and my poor licenseless friends squeezing in one at a time. Not a particularly comfortable or easy fit. And because we're all a bunch of nerds, without fail, at some point in this process, someone will start going, it's the theme to the Tetris game, if you've never played it. And then they'll all start doing it. But now, whenever I see a small car, I think of Tetris and my big friends. And whenever I see, I see Tetris being played, I think of small cars and my big friends. And whenever I see my big friends, I think of small cars and Tetris. That was a tradition, and now they're associated whether I want them to be or not. And I... I wish I was better at memorizing scripture, for example, but memorizing scripture is a habit I'm still developing. It's not baked into me yet. But I'm pretty sure I remember the theme to the Brady Bunch. 
because they reran it a million times around about dinner time while I was growing up. And now when I'm driving, all I can listen to are podcasts and audiobooks, but smartphones didn't arrive in this world quick enough to save me from listening to radio ads and letting them marinate my brain. Repeated action is the basis of tradition. And as much as I'd like to forget, the last coherent thought that I will have in this world, probably while I'm lying in my deathbed, has a reasonable chance of being, hello, Frank Walker from National Times. <laughs> Never been to national tiles in my life, probably never will be, but I will not forget that voice or that sequence of words, which are audible symbols. That's the power of symbolism. They can and will shape you. And the Jewish law was full of symbols. Circumcision and sacrifices are symbolic of the great sacrifice that God was going to make on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Dietary restrictions that the Jews had to follow symbolize that they were a part from the other nations. They do things differently because they were the chosen of God. God did not just accidentally make pork delicious and then catch Abraham trying to eat one and go, no, those are strictly ornamental. The rest of the world ate whatever they wanted, but the Hebrew people ate what they were restricted to because they were being distinct deliberately. And those traditions and their attendant symbols became so entrenched that when they were fulfilled, many Jewish believers didn't know what to do with them now that they were fulfilled. The great sacrifice had come in Jesus Christ, come and then returned to heaven, and the people were saved. And the one for whom we were kept separate has come, and now we're one in him. What do we do now? So now we, we today, God's people, we are called to be apart from the world. And we have only one dietary restriction. One rule about the food we eat, that's at a regular interval, as a non-negotiable part of our faith in practice, we partake in the bread and wine that symbolize Christ's body and blood, which only believers are enjoined to take. That's our dietary symbolism tradition now. And likewise, there are no blood sacrifices or circumcision requirements anymore. We do not give up a portion of our wealth or our flesh to enter into a covenant with God. We give up all of us, everything we are. As all of sinful mankind was wiped off the earth in the flood, so too our sinful lives vanish under the waters of baptism. As Jesus gave up his body to death to rise again, so also we sink into the waters and then rise up new and whole. These are the new symbols. The old symbols were obsolete. Paul says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when we were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is a spiritual circumcision because the whole body, flesh, blood, and bone is given up and a whole new life is added. It's our symbolic, necessary representation of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives once we're saved. He brings our souls to life. He breaks us away from the guilt of our sin. He frees us from any mortal or spiritual enemy that might have thought to rule over us. And so Paul concludes in verses 13 to 15. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Baptism is a symbol of that gospel of Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection, which saves us. He canceled the charge of our sin. That's what Paul referred to earlier in this letter as the mystery of God, a secret now revealed. That's how Christ was going to do it. It's a plan from another place, so we don't try and wrap it up in our expectations because he will not fit them. Whether it's the creative alternative ideas of who Jesus is, leading to these flimsy, hollow Christs, or dogmatically clinging to symbols as if they were magic spells that needed to be cast, Christ does not conform to human expectations of him. He smashes into the world does the opposite of what everyone expected him to do, and demands to those who follow him, I set the agenda, I came from heaven to earth, the least you can do is meet me at the cross. So what do we do? How do we spot false teachings, bad philosophies, hollow attempts at representing Jesus? That's what Paul is concerned about here. Believers that do not follow the truth of Christ through to its conclusions about who he is and how we should live our lives in response to him and how vulnerable those people are to being misled. Are you vulnerable? Here's the easy way to find out. Let's say after this service, a stranger from the uh, service from the other side of the room wanders over to speak to you. If you're a believer, this stranger is someone who doesn't yet know Christ. If you don't yet know Christ, then it's one of these charming church people here who approaches you and they ask, can you tell me what the gospel is? And do you believe it and why? What do you say? You might be excited about the idea and spring-loaded with an answer if you're all fired up for it. You may be disinterested entirely in responding to the question. You might feel like you know but not quite sure how to express it on the spot look around for someone you'd like to defer it to. But if the answer that you give makes you feel weak and uncomfortable just for having to give it, if you're afraid you're going to get it wrong or that you already maybe have it a little bit wrong and someone's going to overthink and think you're an idiot, that is insecurity. That means that you don't completely believe the words that you are saying or that you don't believe the answer that's in your head and you're afraid to speak it. That's spiritual weakness. That's how you act if you're afraid that the Jesus you are leaning on is hollow. That's insecurity and people do not like being insecure. They will do anything they can to get rid of insecurity, spiritual or otherwise, because it reveals who we actually are. If people discover who we really are, then we become self-conscious about who we really are, and it is humiliating and frightening. From the moment that Adam and Eve realized they were naked and hid themselves, to the day of judgment where the saints bow in the presence of God and the sinners beg the mountains to fall on them. This is a core theme of Scripture. 
We're afraid that the thing we are is actually repulsive or weak or ugly or dumb. And about a whole lot of things in our lives, we're probably not wrong. Life is a series of encounters with our true limitations and trying to overcome them. But we put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us. And Jesus calls himself, among other things, the truth. That means he really is the one who can save. He really is all he says he is and can do all he says he can do. He can take the weight. He's not hollow. And if expressing your faith makes you feel weak and vulnerable, then you don't yet fully understand the truth of who Jesus Christ is. But the good news is that you can. You can understand that truth. You can feel vulnerable now because you haven't trusted him with your weight yet. It's like stepping onto a, a glass bottom bridge. Part of you is saying, don't do this. This is a bad idea. This looks like a drop. But your feet will find it solid. And before long, the fear is gone and you can be enjoying the view and inviting others to come out with you. Jesus can take the weight. And if you don't understand something about the gospel, about how to present it, about what it means, about the, how the Trinity is supposed to work, anything. If any of that makes you feel insecure, uncomfortable, weak when you try and explain it, then you need to decide to overcome that. You have six pastors on staff here now, and illuminating the gospel and the, the issues around it are a passion that we all have, and praise God, a job that you've given us. And we will not make you feel stupid if you ask a question that you don't know the answer to or if you have maybe some point of faith wrong. God has given you this community of leaders and the community of believers around you to make you stronger in your faith. Grab one of us. Grab a friend who you respect in the gospel. Grab a, one of our little business cards we have floating around and, and send us a 10-page email if that's how you like to send questions rather than just a short one. I'm not telling you how to approach it, just that you need to. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's not. It's the hardest thing in the world to look at your own weaknesses and address them. But if you confess Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then he has given you the power to do just that by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Don't squander that gift. Jesus calls us all to believe in him and to be saved. And he calls the saved to grow stronger in their faith in him. Find the part of your faith that makes you feel weak and then learn and seek and do until you can lean on it without fear. And for many, this will begin with baptism. There are two reasons that a believer might not get baptized. One is that they have already been baptized. Two is that they are insecure about the process because they're afraid they'll somehow mess it up. They're not good enough for it yet. This is baloney. That's an excuse to avoid feeling weak. If you've ever thought about being baptized and then managed to forget about it, or if you've studiously avoided thinking about it because you feel insecure about it, because you're not ready for it, it's time to get ready. Don't let your fear push you around. You're a child of God. And the first act 
of strength in faith that God has put before you is a public declaration in the form of baptism. Don't dodge the dip. Grab a pastor today and tell them that you want to get baptized. Grab a, a white card that we use for feedback. Fill that out. Tick the little box that says, I'd like to be baptized. We'll help you get there. Grab a friend who you know has been dodging the dip and encourage them to obey the Lord and be baptized. We're doing another baptism service next month, but if you can't make that, we will do as many as we need to to accommodate you. Don't worry about that. But if you are sick of trying to beat a brick wall life with an eggshell faith, baptism is where Jesus proves that you can lean on him without fear. Don't let the world overwhelm you with hollow and deceptive philosophy. You know the gospel of truth, and that truth can set you free. Let's pray. Father God, we give to you our lives because your son gave up his for us. The perfect sacrifice, the one all history looked forward to and all posterity will now look back on. As we live our lives, help us to live diligently in honor of you and to never take for granted the gift of your saving gospel. And as we seek to know more of you, to strengthen in faith, we ask for your Holy Spirit to empower and guide our efforts, to encourage us where we are fearful of our weaknesses, and so that we may witness once again your faithfulness and the power of the truth of your Son. Help us live a faith that is genuine, that leans fearlessly on you, and that inspires others to turn from the hollow things of the world to the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name.